Good morning. The scripture reading this morning uh, can be found in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, through chapter 4, verse 1. You can find that in your pew Bible on page 1163, if you'd like to read along, or behind us on the screen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I long love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. This is God's word. And we all say, Amen. Again, you can find your Bibles. Uh, If you're using the one in the rack in front of you, um, you can find Philippians 3, 17 through 4, 1 on page 1163. If I can take just a quick moment, we have two new West Gators with us for the first time this morning. Sorry to put you guys on the spot. We have Ellie Christine Takahashi in the back there, born, what, a month ago now? Almost a month, and then Kincaid Rose Pusey joins us, about two weeks old. Uh, Why don't you guys just stand up so people can see who you are? Great. A special welcome to them, much to be thankful for there. Philippians 3.17 through 4.1, make your way there, please. It's pretty much impossible these days to go online or check your email or turn the television on without being bombarded by advertisements for some quick fix solution. It doesn't matter what your problem is, there is a fast and easy remedy for it. Uh, Whether it's finding the love of your life or sculpting that Adonis-like physique or achieving a Warren Buffett-style income, you know, the, the options are out there, and you see them everywhere. Of course, the not-so-shocking reality is that none of them actually work. Uh, doesn't take long for each so-called magic bullet to be exposed for the sham, or sometimes the scam, that it is. But you have to ask the question, if we know that life doesn't really work this way, that our problems are rarely fixed overnight, that promises that sound too good to be true usually are, then why do so many people flock to buy these products and follow their promoters with such devotion and zeal? I mean, some of these are billion-dollar industries. What's the draw? Well, these unstable products... Uh, are built on a stable feature of fallen humanity. 
the desire to get everything we want in the least possible time, effort, and pain. That's why they're so successful. Or to put it in the language of Philippians 3:17 through 4:1, we face a constant temptation to follow people who promise the glory of the resurrection without the suffering of the cross. The glory of the resurrection without the suffering of the cross. Now our passage this morning rounds out Paul's exhortation to us to uh, to as the people of God, to be joyfully satisfied in the Lord Jesus. He started clear back in 3.1, and he's been building this argument about why and what it looks like to rejoice in the Lord, to be satisfied in Jesus. And the heart of that was captured in verses 10 through 11. To know Jesus by walking in the power of his resurrection and by following the pattern of his cross. Last week we saw Paul's uh, argument that um, the, how the ongoing pursuit of this uh, desire to know Jesus, how that requires a gospel-shaped humility and a gospel-fueled passion and perseverance. We saw that last week in 3.12 through 16. Well, this morning, Paul tells us that to do all of this, to pursue Christ in this way, to be satisfied in Him and to know Him and, and to be perseverant in that, he tells us this morning that we need help. We need help to do that, to stand firm as we grow in the gospel, as we partner together as a community growing in the gospel, letting it shape our relationships, letting it fuel us on mission for the Lord. We need help to do that. We need worthy examples, the kinds of people who know that their citizenship is in heaven and who hope fully in the resurrection to come. That's where Paul's taking us. So let's pray together, and then we'll look at this passage. God, we do thank you so much that you have not left us alone in this world, that you sent your Son, our chief example, our Savior who does uh, what we could never do for ourselves in his life, death, and resurrection, and that you've given us your people, your body, God, as we look into your word this morning, give us eyes to see you and give us hearts that are eager to obey and to learn what it looks like to share life together as the people of God in Christ. So that's our prayer, God, and we ask that you would meet us in Jesus' name. Amen. Imitating people or following examples, following models is one of the basic ways that we learn in life. I mean, if you think of a child in a home, how do they learn to walk and to talk and so on? They imitate their parents or their brothers and sisters. Uh, you think of an apprentice in a shop. How does he learn his trade? By following uh, his master, so to speak. It was interesting when I was in grad school at Wheaton, it was funny to see how certain students would not only take on the theology of their supervisor, but they would begin to take on their mannerisms as well. They spent so much time that they began to sound like their supervisor. It's like, who am I talking to right now? They'd use their vocabulary and their inflection. Uh, in fact, uh, if you were to listen to some of the sermons of people who've influenced me, I would venture to guess you would hear some similarities in the way that I preach and sound. We learn from examples. We don't just learn 
in a classroom or in a book. We learn from living life in the presence of others, sharing life together, watching how they do it, imitating them without even realizing we're doing it sometimes. It's part of how God wired us as humans. We need community. We need relationships. And within that community, we need worthy examples who show us how to live for Christ. Now, Paul has already held up for us two examples at the end of chapter 2. Timothy and Epaphroditus, who showed us what it looks like when the gospel of Jesus, when the good news of Christ and what he's done for us on the cross to deal with our sin, to rescue us, when that gospel message gets a hold of our lives. Timothy and Epaphroditus were examples of what that looks like. Of course, Paul's also held out his own life as an example throughout the book, as one whose greatest desire is to know Christ and whose chief aim is to honor him, make much of him, whether by his life or his death, as we read back in chapter 1. But the ultimate example that Paul holds out for the people of God, the one he seeks to pattern his own life after and tells us to do likewise, is, of course, the pattern of Christ. Uh, you remember back to chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Paul exhorted us that your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who did not consider his equality with God something to be exploited for selfish gain, but instead humbled himself, taking on human flesh and becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. And as a result, God exalted him to the highest position, giving him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul held out Jesus as our greatest example, his self-giving humility and suffering, laying down his life in love for others and entrusting the results of that to God. That's our example. But of course, to help us follow Jesus, it helps to have tangible pictures of what that looks like, people around us, worthy examples who themselves follow the example of Christ. And so Paul says in 3.17, Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of or watch closely those who live or walk according to the pattern we gave you. Paul wants the Philippian church not only to learn doctrine from him, he wants them to learn that, what we believe, but he also wants them to learn his pattern of life as he follows Christ. Not just what we believe, but how we live. Paul is talking about discipleship. He's talking about discipleship. We need worthy examples or models or mentors to follow in discipleship. And there are several reasons for this. First, a mentor, a worthy mentor, helps us think biblically about life. They help us think biblically about life. One of the most important things that young people can do, and whether you're young in life or just young in the faith, one of the most important things you can do is put yourself around someone who can help you learn how to read your Bible, who can sit down and open the Word of God with you, someone who can help teach you some basic theology about who God is, 
what he's like, what he's done for us, how we relate to him, what he's called us to in this world, so that you can then see the world through the lenses of the scripture, and so live accordingly. So, and, and really that's an exhortation to everybody, not just young people. None of us have arrived so we all need to be learning from others, others who can give us, can help us see life biblically, who can open the Word of God uh, with us and help us learn how to read it. So mentors help us think biblically about life. You can learn a lot in a classroom. There's a fundamental difference between sitting in a classroom and hearing someone teach and sitting down over coffee or in a home and opening the Word of God together with someone. So mentors help us learn to think biblically about life. But they do far more than just teach us. Second, they show us how to live life. They show us how to live. It's not just what's taught that counts in learning how to walk with God. It's just as much what is caught in observation and imitation, being around someone to see how they live. Paul uses the language of walking here. So how we live or conduct our lives. Now, how we live flows out of what we believe. So what we believe is absolutely crucial. But sometimes what we believe, our knowledge and what we're learning from Scripture can kind of get log-jammed in our brain. And it doesn't do anything to change our lives. Mentors, models, examples help us see what does this look like lived out? What does it look like? They demonstrate Wise decision-making. They show us how to live out gospel-saturated relationships. What does it look like when you're, when you're butting heads with someone? How do I navigate that in a way that honors Christ and that reflects his grace to them just as God's had grace on me? Models help us see how to do that. They give us counsel and guidance that comes from years of wisdom of walking with Jesus and making a ton of mistakes in the process. So we can learn from their mistakes, too. They love us when we make mistakes. And they come alongside of us to help us and to encourage us. So mentors show us how to live. Third, following a good model helps us become good models as well. So they help us think biblically. They show us how to live. And here's where discipleship, the real power of discipleship uh, is seen. Following good models helps you become a good model yourself. When Paul wrote his second letter to Timothy, the same Timothy talked about in chapter 2 in Philippians, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. So, Take a look at that verse up there. There are four generations, four spiritual generations in that one verse. Paul, who's talking to Timothy, that's two, and Timothy is to entrust to reliable or faithful men, three, who are able to teach others also, four. So you got one man, Paul, and his life experience and wisdom trickling down through four different generations. Uh, following good models prepares us to become models ourselves, which is terrifying and exhilarating all at the same time. Uh, you know, being an example 
it's, it's kind of scary when you realize, and I, you know, as with young children in the home, you're kind of, your first few years uh, with your first child, you kind of recognize that, well, they're not going to remember any of this anyway. And then pretty soon you realize, well, I remember certain things when I was his age. And, and you know, all of a sudden it gets scary because the mark is being left. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of responsibility in being a role model, in being a mentor. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you're perfect or that you've arrived in some way. I mean, remember what Paul said just a few verses earlier in chapter 3. Not that I've already obtained all this or am already perfect. So being a model is not about being perfect. It's about, you know, being an example means that as I seek to grow, I'm eager to help others learn what God has taught me, including how to respond when I fail and when I let people down. So modeling not just how to live, but also how to you know, walk in forgiveness and repentance and humility. And if you're walking with God, if you're desiring to grow in your relationship with God, then you have something that you can pass on to others. When I was a freshman in college, uh, as many of you know, I was involved with a ministry called The Navigators. Uh, and about halfway through that year, it was part of a Bible study, about halfway through that year, the guy leading my Bible study kind of noticed that I was asking a lot of questions and I was spiritually curious and, and wanting to, to, to grow and so he asked, you know, if we could get together sometime over coffee and talk. And we did that. And uh, then we did that again. And, and pretty soon for the next four years, as long as we were in the same town, we met every week for four years while he taught me how to walk with Christ. He taught me how to read my Bible, how to pray, how to share my faith. We shared life outside of Brugger's Bagels as well. We were in each other's homes and in each other's lives. And one of the first things that he taught me was the importance of passing on what I was learning. It was one of the first lessons. And so during the second semester, like just a few months after he's been meeting with me, I started meeting with a friend of mine named John. I had absolutely no clue what I was doing. I would meet with Brian on a Tuesday night, and he would, you know, teach me some things. I'd meet with John Wednesday morning and just teach him whatever Brian taught me the night before. No clue. But God used it. We had great conversations that came out of that. It forced me to really learn my stuff better as I was preparing to pass it on. So living as a gospel-centered community, that's what our vision says. We want to be a gospel-centered community living each day on mission for Christ. Living that way is a whole lot more than meeting together Sunday morning in a sanctuary or in a classroom. It's being intentional about including others in the day-to-day -day walk of life. People in your home. You're going you're to have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone. Who are you going to bring with you so that they can learn how to do that as well? You know, it's sharing life together. So, who are you going to learn from? Who among your friendships could you put yourself around to begin learning more about who Christ is and, and how to walk with him? And as you learn, who are you going to pass it on to? If we're not asking those questions, we're not thinking seriously about making disciples of Christ. Who are you going to learn from and who are you going to pass it on to? 
and how are you together going to reach into the neighborhoods, into the community around us? We need to develop a culture of discipleship in order to walk faithfully with Jesus as a gospel-centered community on mission for Christ. That's actually something that we want to give more specific attention to as a church in terms of equipping and training in the years ahead. But it doesn't start with a class. It starts with a friendship. It starts with a relationship, sharing life together in Christ. So we're called to follow worthy examples and so become worthy examples ourselves. Now, of course, not everyone that people follow is, in fact, a worthy example. And that's part of the problem here that Paul is addressing. So he continues in verses 18 to 19 with the urgency of following worthy examples. Verse 18, here is the reason why what Paul says in 17 is so urgent. Verse 18, For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live or walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now that is strong language. You don't just drop that casually. You're an enemy of the cross of Christ. You know, that's, that's bold language. And Paul is not using it lightly. He's not just going for a shock value here. He says this with tears. His heart is grieved at the reality. He's grieved by the tragedy of these people's lives and also by the danger of the influence that they have. So he says this warning often, as I've often said before and now say again. This is a very real threat because mentors and examples have such a deep impact on us. Paul wants to make sure they're following the right kind. And there are some who will actually, if you follow them, lead you to become and begin living as an enemy of the cross of Christ. So Paul warns them. Now he doesn't tell us specifically who these people are. Most likely they were either at one point part of the Philippian church or or at least ran in circles close enough to it to be of some notable influence. We don't know. But Paul does tell us how they walk, how they live. Verse 19, he starts with their destructive goal, their destiny, or more simply, their end is destruction. Their end is destruction. If you follow these people, they will not lead you on the path to life. They will lead you to the path of destruction and judgment. This is because, second, their God is their stomach. They have an idolatrous appetite. That's what Paul's saying there. They have an idolatrous appetite. They're so fixed on consuming and finding pleasure in the things of this world that their stomach, their appetite, has become their functional God. You know, they have no control. It's just, if I have a desire, I must... I must consume. Their their appetites, their deepest, dearest object of worship. And so as a result, they live in shameless revelry. Shameless revelry. Their glory is in their shame. 
So the things that they ought to be ashamed of, they actually celebrate. That's their identity. They turn the kinds of things, or they turn God's word on its head, as David Wells puts it, making sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. So they glory in their shame. And all of this owes to their earthbound perspective. Their mind is set on earthly things. They can only see what's right in front of them. They cannot see God or his son, and so they hope in what's seen, in what they can grasp here and now, what is in fact deteriorating and will not satisfy in the end, but feels good because of the immediate gratification that it, that it offers. Another way to put it, they live as though the resurrection already happened, glory of heaven, and as though the cross wasn't even therefore necessary. That's how they live. Now this vision is very familiar to us. You might say it's the epitome of American culture because it's in fact the epitome of fallen human culture. You cannot escape this desire to immediately gratify yourself with the least amount of pain and effort and time possible. That's the air we breathe as fallen human beings. All the glory of heaven with none of the pain of the cross. It's the message we sometimes hear uh, in what passes as Christian teaching. So the church is not immune from this kind of thinking. You think of the so-called health and wealth prosperity teaching. So preachers who promise that all the glory and splendor uh, and health and wealth of heaven that's waiting for you there can actually be yours right here and right now. And if you're not experiencing that, well, then you just don't have enough faith. Or some will say, maybe you just haven't given enough to the Lord. You've got to plant your seed. Give, give a little seed money so that God can bless you and fill your barns. You know, shouldn't you live like royalty since you are a child of the king? Why wait till heaven if you can have your best life now? Well, these examples, this mindset, is a direct contrast to both the church's identity and our ultimate hope in Christ. They tell us to put our hope in the present world, and they leave no category, no room for suffering. There's no room for it. It can't fit into that mindset. We need to ask ourselves, when we see a leader or someone that we really admire and want to follow, that we want to become like, what is it about them that we admire? Is it their success? Is that what we want to become like them for? Is it their physical fitness? Is it their trouble-free existence, you know, sailing through life? Is it the size of their church? Is it the size of their bank account? Or do we want to be like them because they remind us of Jesus? Because when you watch them closely and you see how they live in their pursuit of Christ, you say it, it just you feel like that's something you want, and that's something that, that you can do as you see them living it out, regardless of the size of their 
church or their bank account or their relative success. We need to follow worthy examples in our pursuit of Christ. So Paul lays out two key marks of what that looks like in verses 20 to 21. Two key marks of a worthy example. Knowing that their citizenship is in heaven and hoping in the resurrection to come. Verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So two key marks of a worthy example are that they know that their citizenship is in heaven and that they hope in the resurrection to come. The church's true allegiance is not in this world. Paul says we are citizens of heaven. So we live on this earth as exiles, as resident aliens, whose king is in heaven and who's ruling from there, who will one day return and reclaim and remake this fallen earth into a new creation filled with his glory. But in the meantime, we are not at home. This is not our home. Some of you here know exactly what that feels like. You grew up in a different country, speaking a different language. There are things that people in America will never understand about who you are because they don't know where you came from the way that you do. They will never know the loneliness that you felt as an immigrant. They'll never know the fear or even the marginalization. Now, that doesn't mean that you want to go away, necessarily. No. But it is a daily reminder of it, that there's a difference between the culture you came from and the culture you now live in. The church should feel a similar tension. A similar tension. That we don't quite fit in this world. That there's something different from where we belong to where we're living Now, that doesn't mean our goal is to escape this world. Now, we've been rescued and set apart as God's people for a reason. We've been given a purpose and a mission in this world to be a blessing, to be a light to this world and a witness to the gospel of Jesus. The word citizenship that Paul uses here, he used it earlier, a form of it earlier in chapter 1, verse 27, when he said, only live as citizens worthy of the gospel. So, though this is not our home, we have a mission. We are citizens worthy of the gospel. That's how we're called to live. So we shouldn't put our hope and our identity in this present world, but we should not neglect our mission while we're here either. Our character and our conduct ought to reflect that our identity is as members of God's heavenly community. God's household, his kingdom, a community on mission for Christ. You want to follow people who know that they who know who they are in Christ. You want to follow people who know that their identity, their significance, their value, their calling comes from their relationship with Jesus. 
It's not who they are and what they've done. It's who he is, what he's done in living the life we couldn't live, in dying on the cross to pay for our sins, in rising from the dead to give us new life through faith. They know their identity is in Christ. They're citizens of heaven. You want to follow those kind of people. Follow those kind of people. So a worthy example knows that their their citizenship is in heaven. And therefore, a worthy example hopes in the resurrection to come. Paul says that um, from heaven we are awaiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly bodies, our humble bodies, to be like his glorious body. Paul is talking about bodily resurrection at the end of the age, when Christ returns. So when Christ came the first time, he bore our sins on the cross. He took the wrath of God against our sin on himself to forgive us and free us through faith in him. He rose from the dead, defeating death that we might know God. When he returns, he's going to complete the job. He will completely wipe out the very presence of sin. Its power has already been crippled, but we still live with it every day. When Christ returns, he will take away the very presence of sin. He will take away all of the results of sin. Every evidence of fallen humanity will be gone. All of the pain, all of the sorrow, all of the suffering and death will be no more. We will enjoy God's presence forever in a heavenly new earth, in resurrected bodies after the pattern of our resurrected Savior, Jesus. He's going to take these humble bodies that don't work too well because of sin, because of the decay of the fall, and we're going to have new ones that are fit for eternity in his presence. That is our ultimate hope. So just as we follow Jesus' pattern in 2, 5 through 11, the, the pattern of humility, the pattern of dying to self, so we can anticipate sharing in the glory of his resurrection here in 320 through 21. That's our ultimate hope. That is our best life. And it is yet to come. That's the crown time, if you will. But we live in the cross time. In between Jesus' first and second comings. And so we need a category for suffering. We need to know how to make sense of the pain that we sometimes feel, the pain that we feel because of our walk with Christ. As Paul said earlier in verses 10 to 11, to know Jesus is not just to walk in the power of his resurrection, the power of the Holy Spirit, it's also to share, to fellowship in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. We live in the cross time. And so it's our joyful privilege In this meantime, while we wait for his return and the glory to come, to share in Christ's sufferings so that we can make the gospel known and so that we can be changed by God's grace. Worthy examples recognize that this world is fading and that we're waiting for something better. They don't spend their time trying to avoid suffering at all costs. But they teach us instead how to suffer well how to suffer well for the cause of Christ. 
an enemy of the cross, according to Paul, is someone who finds their identity and puts their hope in this life, in right now, in something other than the resurrection to come, which, is, which empties the cross of its glory and its power. They are those who echo Satan's temptation to Jesus in the desert when he said to him, I'll give you all these kingdoms if you will just fall down and worship me. So Satan says to Jesus, you can have the glory, you can have the kingdom, and you can have it now, and it won't cost you the cross. There'll be no pain. You just got to bow the knee. Enemies of the cross follow that same temptation and echo it to us day after day. All the glory of heaven, none of the pain of the cross. Worthy examples don't buy that. Their hope is in the resurrection to come. They praise God for his good gifts now. So for what money and health they do enjoy, that's a gift from God and they praise him for it. But they recognize that it's a gift. It's not God. And so they don't hold tightly to it. They don't hold tightly to the things of this world. They model generosity and sacrifice. They're eager to lay their lives down to make much of Christ and to serve others. They're willing to die. A worthy example is willing to die for the cause of Christ because they know that they have a better possession and a lasting one. Follow those kinds of people. Follow people who know that their citizenship is in heaven, that they serve the king of heaven, that's their identity, and who hope ultimately in the resurrection to come. As Paul says in, in 4 verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Now, chapter 4.1 is really a hinge verse. It concludes chapter 3, and then it introduces chapter 4. But don't miss this point. If you want to stand firm in the joy of being satisfied in Jesus and growing in Him, in pursuing and knowing and treasuring Him above all else in this fallen world, and not being led astray by lesser treasures that cannot satisfy and do not last you need to put yourself around worthy examples who know that their citizenship is in heaven and whose ultimate hope is in the resurrection to come. And so I ask again, who are you going to learn from? Who in your relationships? You say, you know what? I've been watching that person for a while. And I'd like to ask them some questions. I'd like to figure out what they're doing. I need help in this. It's not going well. Who are you going to learn from? Who are you going to follow in your pursuit of following Christ? And who are you going to pass your faith on to? Who are you going to invest in? Discipleship doesn't start with a class or a program. It starts with a friendship shared in the bond of Christ. 